Hey there, and welcome to In Sickness and In Health, a podcast about our relationships with our bodies and issues at the intersections with chronic illness, disability, healthcare, and mortality. My name is Kara Gale. I'm not a doctor or a medical professional. I'm just a person and a patient who really wants to talk about this stuff more. Nothing said on this show should ever be considered medical advice. If you're experiencing a medical issue, please seek qualified medical help. I know the system sucks, but I wish you a lot of luck. Every person is different, even within disease groups, so none of my guests should ever be regarded as official representatives or spokespersons for their conditions. Please respect their very personal choices, and unless they ask for it, please don't make suggestions about treatments or lifestyle changes. Unsolicited medical advice is never not annoying. Usually, I try to cut my interviews down to about an hour, uh, and if there's more to our conversation that I want you to hear, I'll stick that part in a bonus episode. But I talked to this week's guest for so long, I actually had enough to produce two full episodes for your listening pleasure. You can listen to just one or both, really in any order, but this one is technically first since it happened first in our conversation. And I really hope you enjoy listening to them because we had a blast chatting. In this episode, Kate McCombs, MPH, talks about her experience in the Australian healthcare system while getting her master's in public health down under. Her work as a freelance sex educator, including her recent West Coast teaching tour and founding Sex Geekdom, the stigma surrounding sexually transmitted infections and disclosure, her tea and empathy workshops, and the difficulty of making new friends as a grown-up. In the second episode, we compare notes about living with chronic migraine and our attempts at managing the condition, migraine literacy among doctors we've seen, and regularly sticking needles in our heads because that is somehow preferable to the migraines. We also talk about New York's restrictive medical cannabis program, harm reduction and empathy, linguistic precision, and more about Kate's tea and empathy workshops. Before we get into the interview, I want to take a moment to say something about violence. I want to, but I don't know what, because these high-profile incidents keep happening before I've had time to grieve and collect my thoughts from the last one. Last week was too much, and I still haven't even begun to digest what happened last month in Orlando. I want so badly to say something meaningful about waking up almost every day to these new and terrible events and say something about all of the violence that has happened and will continue to happen, including the stuff that we don't even hear about. Like we talked about in these episodes, during times when I'm dealing with increased chronic migraines, my mental and emotional bandwidth narrows to an impossible extent. Because I'm already in woozy, cloudy crisis mode on a personal level, it's hard to process atrocious and never-ending acts of violence that happen every day. An unexpected effect of doing a regular show like this is that it's been punctuated 
by these major acts of horror since I started. My time doing this has been marked by the terrorist attacks on Planned Parenthood, Paris, Belgium, San Bernardino, and other mass shootings that have dominated the news. Orlando. The black men dying at the hands of police for no reason. The black women who are also dying at the hands of police, but often get forgotten in the ever-mounting pile of hashtags remembering those who didn't have to die. The disabled folks and other people of color who suffer violence at the hands of those meant to protect us that don't get the same amount of attention either. The officers shot by a sniper in Dallas. The militaristic police presence at peaceful protests that so often turn unnecessarily violent. The unquantifiable violence in Syria and the surrounding region, and frankly, all around the world. It's constant, and these things are only the tip of the iceberg. I do want to talk more. I do want to talk more about violence, but my brain really is not up to the task at this time. And for that, I am very, very sorry. I want to offer more support and solidarity in these times, but I'm so often trapped in my own personal migraine nebula because it's often the only thing I can handle. I've been retweeting many resources for grief and self-care because it's what little I can do. It's not enough because it's never enough, but in these times where we need self-care the most to honor our grief and tell those we still have how much we love them, I love you and I am so glad that we have this time together. We'll be talking a bit more about police violence, uh, domestic violence, and traumatic brain injury in an upcoming episode. I have long been planning on devoting an entire episode to violence as a public health issue, and it's something I would really like to make happen. If you have thoughts on these issues, talk to me. Send me your thoughts on different issues related to health, disability, and violence, especially if you're a person of color or member of another marginalized group, especially if you have experienced violence yourself or it has touched your life in some way. If you're ready to share, shoot me an email at insicknesspod at gmail.com or you can use the contact page at insicknesspod.com. And if not, I get it. And I am sending love your way and to everyone who feels shaken and unsafe and exhausted from all the hurt. Because language is so often the first thing to get really difficult for me during these chronic migraine flares, I've been experimenting with migraine imagery using Snapchat and Instagram. I am a visual artist first, but had gotten away from visually arting. Uh, now I'm back. I started a separate Instagram account to log some of what I've been playing around with while up late at night with migraine insomnia and dread. I share some of the stuff on Snapchat as in sickness pod, but most of it is on Instagram. Uh, check it out if you're interested at bimps, B-I-M-P-S-E, gets weird. 
I want to take a moment to say thanks to my patrons over on Patreon for supporting the show on an ongoing basis. Stanford, Laura, and Katie, you rule. Uh, special shout out to Yarrow for being the latest patron to join the party. Thank you, Yarrow. Patreon enables me to accept small recurring donations on a per-episode basis to help with the production costs for the podcast. If you haven't yet, check us out over on Patreon. There are different pledge levels that come there are different pledge levels that come with different rewards, and patrons who support the podcast also get access to the patron-only feed, on which I'll be sharing some more behind-the-scenes stuff in months to come. Check out InSicknessPod slash donate for links to our Patreon and PayPal pages, including a video in which I describe exactly how Patreon works. Don't worry if you can't donate. The chronic life is expensive, and I totally get it. You can also help out by taking a moment to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, which helps other people find the show. I'm also always looking for folks to help me transcribe my interviews, but I am hoping to raise enough money through Patreon at some point to be able to pay for transcription so I can make the full transcripts available in a more timely fashion. If you're listening to these episodes the week they come out, and are or can be in the New York area, Kate will be hosting another Tea and Empathy workshop next Tuesday, July 19th at Shag, Brooklyn. This workshop will focus on communicating better in your relationships and will be co-hosted by Kate's professional soulmate, Louise Boucher. You'll hear us talk about some of their adventures and tea and empathy in these episodes. Check out the episode page for links to some of the stuff we talk about in this episode and a link to that upcoming Tea and Empathy workshop in Brooklyn. You can find resources and more from us at InSicknessPod.com and on social media at InSicknessPod. Find Kate and all of her workshops, including Tea and Empathy, online at KateMcCombs.com. Check out Sex Geekdom at sexgeekdom.com and on social media at sexgeekdom. Find her on Twitter at katecom and on Instagram at kateanswers. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Um, so, like I said, I have a thousand more questions about your toilet after yeah. using it. Um, number one, was it always tilted like that? Tilted? What do you mean? It's like the back is up higher than the oh. front. Oh. I guess I just never really noticed. It's very noticeable. Oh. Also, you have a squatty potty? I do have a squatty potty. How is it? It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the premium bathroom experience in there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for for the listeners at home, she has a Japanese toilet seat that name all the things that the toilet seat does. <laughs> well, it's got a bidet function. Um, so for people who don't know, that's when it squirts water at your butt. Yeah, and so they have like a front wash for people with vulvas, as well as oh. two strengths of the back wash, and um, it's got a heated seat so that in the winter when you're 
walking through the cold house and you have to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. It's just that little comforting seat to sit on. Yeah. Oh, that sounds so nice. <laughs> it's very luxurious. <laughs> Talk about a self-care thing. Dude, somebody called me the self-care queen recently, and they meant it as the compliment that I received it as. Like, I, I think about this stuff a lot, just small ways to make life more comfortable and pleasurable. Yeah. What are some other things that you do? Mm, what are other things that I do? Um, well, I was thinking about these ice packs, right? Because this helps me tremendously with my migraine pain. Having, uh, having ice packs that are covered in fabric that are soft and pleasing. Mm-hmm. I've just, I, a friend of mine made me an ice pack with a Star Trek cover made out of this soft flannel. The one I'm currently the using. One I'm currently using, yeah. <laughs> And I've, I've commissioned another another friend who sews to make me other nerdy covers for my other ice packs. Very nice. Um, so you are a sex educator. I am. How did that happen? So I've been doing sex education unofficially for most of my life. I got fantastic sex education from my mom when I was about seven. She sat me down. We went to round table pizza because that was what was really exciting to a seven-year-old. Um, back in the 90s and she explained to me how puberty worked and how reproduction worked and she was it was totally age appropriate but it was even pleasure inclusive like I I asked her after she explained the whole penis and vagina bit I asked her if that hurt and she said when you do it with someone you care about it it can actually feel really good and I thought that was amazing and so this was all very normal to me at the time I had no sense of this being a pretty unusual introduction into sex education And as I got older, my friends realized that they could ask me questions about what was going on for their bodies. And I was able to answer them, and I felt very comfortable doing so because my mom had been seemingly quite comfortable talking to me about it. So I just, I had a lot of these experiences as a young, at a young age where I, it was positively reinforced that I had this knowledge and had this comfort talking about it and that that offered value to people. So Fast forward to college, I learned that there was a sexual health education program um, on the campus where I was going to school, and I I found them after Googling sex in every <laughs> search engine on the campus website, not because I was looking for sex, but because I was really mm-hmm. curious about who was doing sex education. The Google al- algorithm wasn't quite as good as it is now. No. no. <laughs> the dark ages of Google. Yeah. Uh, this was, I think this was before I even had Facebook. Mm -hmm. Um, I was a little bit of a late social media adopter. Anyway, so I found this group, and I applied to be a part of their program and got accepted, and then I got to teach workshops around the campus on things like safer sex and pleasure and all sorts of stuff that college students wanted to know about. Mm -hmm. And then I got to become a trainer for the program, and I met mentors through that program. Um, one mentor in particularly, in particular really helped teach me the business side of being a freelance sex educator, which I'm eternally grateful for. Yeah, that's a big, big important part. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Her name is Ivy Chen and she's a professor at San Francisco State and does freelance sex ed on the side as well. So I've been very lucky, I think, to have mentors in my life who have been willing to to show me how it all works and has have made this a realistic career for me what magical place did your mom come from that she was so <laughs> uh not only comfortable but like willing to talk to a seven-year-old 
in a uh, comprehensive way about sex and sex education. You know, it's really funny that you ask because my mom would probably consider herself somebody who's just a little bit uncomfortable with sexuality. But I think what she's articulated to me is that she wanted me to have a different experience of sex ed than she had. And she actually explained this to me when, when we had this first big talk. Her mother died when she was very young. And so when it came time for her to get puberty education, her her father, who was this kind of gruff uh, middle school principal type, uh, he I love my grandfather a lot, but he was not exactly super touchy-feely emotional guy. Mm-hmm. And he recognized that she needed to have this information so she wouldn't start her period and freak out that she was dying or something. So he went to the library at his middle school and just got all the books that were available at the time in the late 50s on puberty, just gave her this stack, walked into her room, tossed it on her bed and said, here, read these. And I give him a lot of credit. You know, he could have just done nothing at all. He could have just ignored it and pretended like it wasn't there. Mm -hmm. Um, But at least he was able to give her some access to information, even though it was clearly suboptimal. (laughs) So my mom was pretty clear when she had me that she wanted me to have a different experience of sexuality. So she started that pretty young. Yeah, that's great. Um, What did you major in in college? My undergrad's in anthropology. That's probably helpful. It really is. It's not very practical, but as as a kind of a theoretical background for what I do, it's really helpful. And there were a lot of sexuality and gender-related classes that were taught under the anthropology major at Berkeley, which was awesome. Yeah, I think I, I always loved anthropology, and if I hadn't been so, like, arts-oriented, probably would have majored in that. And you're right, it isn't, like, directly practical, but I think that the things that you're that you learn in anthropology and like the way that you learn to see the world can be applicable to any career, I think. Absolutely. I totally agree. I, when I was finished with my degree, I knew that I wanted to do grad school in something that was a little more practical. Um, so I did my master's in public health and I found that the combination of those two disciplines have been really beneficial for how I teach about sexuality and how I just view life and people and everything in general. Yeah. So you actually uh, got your master's in public health in Australia. I did. I did. Is it, it, it's still an MPH? It's not a different degree? No, it's the same, same degree. It's in the same curriculum that they teach at the, at, uh, in MPH programs mm-hmm. in most of the world. Why did you decide to, I mean, a better question might be why not go study in Australia, <laughs> but like, was there any like specific thing that, that drew you there? Yeah, totally. So it was, it was kind of a, in some ways it was an efficiency decision because I knew that I wanted to live abroad and my husband did as well, I wanted to live abroad before we had kids. And I knew I wanted to get this MPH degree and I thought it would be really cool to study public health somewhere where they have a universal healthcare system because mm. that has huge implications on sexual health of course, yeah, and all health. Um, and so that was really unique to get to, to study that within that system. So I, I got a better understanding of, of that kind of system than I'm sure, you know, a lot of Americans get. And I'm really quite grateful for that experience. Yeah. I imagine cult- culturally um, how Australia handles sex might be a little different than America. It's a little different, but it's not night and day like the way the Netherlands handle sexuality. Mm. Yeah. 
Um, there's definitely some key differences. I, I would not say that sex ed there is vastly better than it is here, which surprised me. I thought it would be, I thought it would be better because they're, they're in general a much less religious society. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that would kind of trickle over into less kind of pearl clutching about young people getting access to sex ed. Um, so it's, it's a little bit better, but not dramatically. But their, their health outcomes, like with STIs and unplanned pregnancy, those measures are much uh, more where we'd like them to be there because of the access that they have to health care. Right. How was your experience of their healthcare system while you were there? Well, it was, I had much less complex health issues when I lived there, but the experiences that I did have were fantastic. Um, the first time I ever went to a doctor there, it was this very interesting cultural experience because he was a medical doctor who introduced himself to me by his first name. And my husband was with me. I had some you know, viral infection, something that you get when you move to another continent and are exposed to new bugs. And he was just so chill and talked to me like a peer. <laughs> and it was a really surreal experience because that's not typically there's, uh, even if they're quite kind, there's kind of more of a power relationship mm-hmm. I've found with American doctors. So that was a unique experience. Um, I, I joke that there were no death panels in sight. <laughs> like, that's always something that, you know, the kind of the anti universal healthcare pundits always are talking about. And I had no experience of that. Um, I thought it was really interesting how much less expensive my migraine medication was there. Can you uh, give us a rough sketch of that? <laughs> yeah. I So at the time, I was taking Maxalt, and, which is a triptan, which if you feel a migraine coming on, uh, makes it like stop or be less terrible. Yeah. And I remember... Get it, seeing how much it would have cost before I moved there in the U.S. and it was you know like four hundred dollars or something mm. ridiculous. The same prescription in Australia, out of pocket, was like twenty five. That's so crazy. <laughs> and it was a generic version, but they were both sure. generic versions. Yeah. Well, I've I've filled triptan prescriptions of generic medication where I get f- nine pills for one hundred and twenty dollars with insurance. Wow. Yeah. That's really chilling. It's ridiculous. I mean, it turns out that I hate those medications, and yeah. I, I don't I don't respond well to them, so it, like, works out that I, you know, don't <laughs> still really adjust. have Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the other thing is, like, with chronic migraine, you just have too many headaches to only get nine pills a month, and if you take them too much, it can, like, hurt your kidneys and all that stuff. But for people who have, like, episodic migraine who really could be helped by this medication, it's so ridiculously expensive yeah and at the time my migraines were episodic like mm-hmm. that i was getting about two to three a month and it was very manageable that sounds oh, delightful i know the good old days right <laughs> <laughs> so uh what kind of things have you done as a freelance sex educator lots of things some of my work is online so i have worked for and written for blogs um and done online sex education, but most of my work has been workshops that people bring me in to teach. So my uh, my very first kind of the, fir- the first stage of my career, I was teaching sex education in schools actually um, as a freelancer, doing puberty education for fifth graders and middle schoolers, and then doing the comprehensive sex ed for high school students, uh, which I enjoyed a lot. But I ultimately realized that. I felt more at home teaching adults. Um, 
not because I don't love teaching young people, but because it's somewhat easier to teach adults in the sense that nobody is supervising you for right. what they think is, is or is not appropriate to share. So it's just a little bit lower pressure in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, the questions that I get from adults, I don't have to censor myself with how I answer those questions. Right. Um, I do a lot of work. I've done a lot of work through my whole career with college students, and that's a nice population to work with because they're still young enough that they can really benefit from sex education, but they're old enough that people assume they're having sex mm-hmm. for, for better or worse. I mean, I think there's problems with assuming that they're all having sex as well. Um, but it's not, there's not as, as much pearl clutching yeah. about teaching them about the things they want to know about. Yeah. Uh, what's your favorite topic to teach on? Uh, I think my favorite topic to teach on is about communication Mm -hmm. basically so I I teach a lot of workshops about empathy now and I took one and it was amazing (laughs) it was so awesome to have you there yeah I feel like empathy is kind of the ultimate sex tip and I I think it's a communication superpower in general so I, I love teaching this workshop because it it's helpful to people in their sex lives even though we usually don't talk about sex in the workshop but it's really helpful with every relationship that you have in your life. And I often sex education gets kind of lumped in with general uh, functioning in life kind of education, like how we interact interpersonally and um, all of our relationships, not just our sexual and romantic ones. And I think empathy is this really powerful tool to enable those relationships to be deeper and more satisfying and um, and more supportive. Mm -hmm. Is there a topic that you really don't enjoy teaching? <laughs> what do I not enjoy teaching? I haven't taught anything that I don't enjoy teaching for ages. Well, that's, you're doing great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's one thing that's nice about a freelance career. Yeah. You know, you get to kind of tell other people what it is that you teach, and then they decide whether or not it's something that they want for the population that they represent. Yeah. Um, so you recently attended an event where Charlie Sheen... Spoke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, if anyone doesn't know, he came out last year, I think it was, as HIV positive. So I was at the the launch of a new condom brand, and the company that's launching the, the condom had hired Charlie Sheen to be their ambassador because of his openness about his HIV. Mm-hmm. And they're, they were very aware of the fact that he was a controversial figure. Like in the invite, it's like, be aware there's going to be a controversial celebrity guest <laughs> to build anticipation. So it was a little bit of a big reveal when he came out. Yeah. Um, and I think their I think their intention behind it is to encourage more open, frank conversations about STIs as well as how to prevent them. Mm-hmm. And I certainly think they're generating conversations. Like with, within my field, it's generated quite a bit of controversy because of his history of violence against women and mm. those sorts of things, which I, I understand. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. think that's a good fair, concern to have. I think that's a fair criticism. Yeah. Um, but I, I also think that I, I think that in general, having conversation, more conversations about SDIs and how to prevent them is, is a good thing. So I agree. I also think that having conversations about violence against women are important. So <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like if we could do both at the same time, sure. Why not? Um, yeah, but I think, um, like, the Google searches for uh, terms related to HIV skyrocketed mm-hmm. after he came out, um, which is something really important because um, people, like, don't 
really care about HIV anymore, and, mm-hmm. and that's kind of a problem. There was a, a great episode of South Park that's probably like 10 years old at this point, which is horrifying. Um, I actually wrote a paper on it in college for a communications class that was about, I think it was called the Campaign of Media and Film, and we had to write a paper about some piece of media that like had some sort of message, and there's this episode of South Park where uh, Cartman gets his tonsils out. It's called tonsil trouble. Cartman gets his tonsils out and requires a blood transfusion, I think, and it turns out that he got tainted blood, which is super, like, not a thing that happens. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, reasonable suspension of disbelief. Um, and then he infects Kyle or Stan, I forget which one, uh, with it. Uh, and then, like, they realize that, like, no one cares about HIV-AIDS anymore, and everyone's, like, all into cancer now, and they're like, we need to f- figure out how to cure this, first of all, but also, like, on the way to curing it, make people care about HIV again. So they try to throw this benefit, and no one shows up, and they get Jimmy Buffett to come, because that's, like, the only <laughs> celebrity that they could get, and he's singing about AIDS Burger in Paradise. <laughs> Yeah, oh, it's a great episode. I'm going to have to, I'll send you a link. Um, And then they're like, well, we just, we have to talk to Magic Johnson because he's had HIV forever Mm -hmm. and he seems to be fine. So maybe he has the answer. And so they go and they visit him and he's like, you know, I don't know what it is. I just like, I just got so lucky. And then they walk into his bedroom and there's just piles of cash everywhere and they're like, oh, this might have something to do with it. So that they go to some scientists and they like take all of this cash and, and, and concentrate it down into a serum and then like look at it under a microscope. And it turns out that it's like killing all of the HIV uh, virus. And um, then it like cuts to a newscaster saying like, we found the cure for AIDS. It's about $180,000 injected directly into your bloodstream. And one of the last scenes in the episode is you see like an establishing shot of a village in Africa and then a Range Rover pulls up and a white guy gets out and yells hey we found the cure for AIDS you just gotta inject yourself with all your cash and then he drives off (laughs) it's like quite a metaphor for a lot of international relief I imagine exactly which is why the episode is so brilliant and South Park always is (laughs) but uh why did I start talking about that? <laughs> I don't remember, but it was I was I was with you along with your story. Yeah, it's it's one of my favorite episodes. Um, oh, I guess just I was talking about how like no one cares about HIV anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think um, in my world it seems like people are still talking about it a lot, but I recognize that I'm also in kind of a bubble, mm-hmm. and and I'm also I have a lot of colleagues that work in international health, like doing meaningful work around HIV internationally. So I think in my world it still seems like something people talk about but I imagine in the mainstream now that it's something that is less of a death sentence mm-hmm. um, people have gotten more relaxed and, and definitely there's some data too on people not being as scared which mm-hmm. we think of as being a good thing but there's there's kind of a trend towards condom fatigue right and whereas right after the HIV scare happened we saw a reduction in all of these other STIs because people were using condoms because they were afraid of dying yeah that'll that'll make you wrap it up yeah <laughs> That'll make you wrap it up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Do you know much about, like, PrEP and the prophylactic medication regimens? It's it's not my main area of expertise. I know about it as a general thing Mm -hmm. and how um, 
how it seems to be something that people are really liking because it's the one person explained it to me it's kind of birth control mm. but for for HIV right and there it allows them to um, recognize the limits of of their safer sex activity mm-hmm. and um, like particularly if if people know that they like to go have sex with strangers this allows them to be able to do that more safely um, but then also just for people in general to to manage their risk in in a way that has more options than just using a condom yeah yeah it's interesting um, what did you think about Tra- so Charlie Sheen actually spoke at that event what did what, mm. what were your thoughts yeah well it was it was interesting because I've only ever seen him on TV obviously and what I was really struck by was just how unpolished he was like he read off of a handwritten sheet of notes and it was almost adorable <laughs> sort of um, mostly I think my feelings were just this is really odd and this is a really kind of strange situation to be in that yeah. I found myself in. Um, it was a little bit surreal, actually. He was, like, ten feet in front of me. Um, and, you know, he had... I don't really remember a lot of what he had to say. Like, it, it I think he he was mostly just encouraging people to, to use condoms and talking about why this product is innovative. And, um, yeah, it was kind of... It was most... My personal experience of it was just kind of surprising. Yeah. Interesting. So people's attitudes about this stuff really have, just in our lifetimes, changed dramatically. Mm-hmm. Um, so much of the sex education that I got, well, a lot of my sex education actually came from my best friend growing up. Her mom was our high school sex, edu- sex ed teacher, oh, wow. um, which was great for me, super traumatizing for her. <laughs> Uh, I'm super like thankful for it because I never got pregnant and I probably have HPV, but other than that, I've never gotten an actual STD. It's a pretty typical experience, yeah. Right, right. Um, and her approach to it wasn't particularly sex negative, but it wasn't sex positive right. either because you know, growing up in the 90s, it was like if you have sex, you will get AIDS and die, you know, and there was so much. So much of our sex education was fear based mm-hmm. and about like you have to protect yourself because you could die, which is which is and was true more so than than now. Um, although it's still totally true if you don't have access to the medications right, and stuff. Um, so I, I don't know if I have a question, I guess just. Can you talk a little bit about attitudes around this sort of stuff and how they change over time? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure like there are definitely things that seem to have shifted over time. But one of the things I find interesting about sex ed around STIs is that there's most of it is so fear based. And obviously getting HIV would be something that even if you had access would compromise, compromise your life and health in many ways. But there are other STIs that where the stigma is not proportionate to how severe the actual illness is, like herpes, for example. Yeah. Like it's, it's this incredibly common virus that a huge number of people get, yet there's this gigantic stigma around it, and when in reality it's essentially a skin condition. I can't tell you how many times I've had to like talk my friends off ledges yeah. with them being like, I think I have herpes, oh my god! And then... like. Eight times out of ten, it's just an ingrown hair. <laughs> right. 
but I it really freaks people out, which is interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And I I want to have kind of acknowledgement and empathy around the fact that it can feel like the end of the world when you get a diagnosis like that. Mm-hmm. But I think it's uh, what I would love to see in terms of a shift in attitude is that um, that STIs like other infections are things you probably want to avoid. But if you get one, you just act like a grown up and deal with it. You know, it's 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 just something that you learn to manage and um, that and to not shame other people because they get infections or illnesses. Um, so that's that's something that I'd really love to see be a direction that the world goes into. I don't know how realistic it is. Yeah. Um, so for like, let's say somebody has contracted herpes and there's always, um, you know, a, a lot of uh consideration about disclosure mm-hmm. um, for their future partners. Do you have any advice for that, whether it be herpes or HPV or any of the other kind of uh, less serious STIs? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I'm definitely in support of disclosure. Um, and I think, uh, I think people who, there, there are a number of people who are, who have herpes and have written about this, like Ella Dawson and Adriel Dale, um, who um, and others that I've read, they, um, I've heard them talk about how that decision to disclose can actually be a, a kind of filtering mechanism for having higher caliber people basically entering their world um, because it can be this kind of emotionally intense conversation. Then you you know you kind of filter now who is actually worth having that conversation with. Mm-hmm. And, and most, most people recommend having that conversation not when you're naked, which is generally something I suggest for, for most high-stakes sex conversations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I think in, in terms of disclosure, I think one thing that also really seems to help is knowing a lot about your, your condition and knowing what is needed to mediate risk mm-hmm. so that if someone understandably has concerns about rates of transmission and all these other things you can answer those questions calmly and and you know being clear about your boundaries and what you need and and being respectful of their boundaries and what they need yeah all comes back to communication yeah and most things do (laughs) yeah it's why i do what i do yeah i want to talk more about sti stigma because that's something that like has actually come up a lot in a lot of my recent conversations Mm. and i'm not sure what else to say about it to get you to talk more about it. But do you have any other thoughts about SDI stigma? Yeah, well, I mean, one thought I have about it is that the there seems to be kind of a, a... I'm trying to figure out how to describe this. There seems to be a disconnect between how alone people feel when they get an STI diagnosis and how alone they actually are in terms of how many people have whatever it is. So because I'm a sex educator, I, I am a, like the phrase I use is beacon of permission. Like when people find out what I do, I'm often on the receiving end of quite personal disclosures about people's sex lives. And I hear about people's STI diagnoses all the time. Like now when someone tells me they've had chlamydia, I'm like, oh, did you get your antibiotics? Like it doesn't even register as an emotionally intense thing for yeah. me unless they're kind of displaying feelings of distraught or whatever. Yeah. Um, so I think I, I feel almost, um, 
confused sometimes when it it really shakes people's world so much because my perception of it is that these things are all quite common Mm -hmm. um but people in my world are talking about them more and i i wish that more people would talk about these things so that we can sort of have a a greater sense of what is and is not normal yeah yeah that's my whole operating yeah thing that's kind of your jam yeah (laughs) yeah um, I'm telling a, a story at, at Story Collider in August, oh, awesome. which is like the moth, but about science. Um, and I think I'm actually going to tell a story about the time I thought I had syphilis. But I don't want to do it in a way that adds to the stigma of this sort of stuff. It turns out I didn't have syphilis, which was great. Um, what had happened was I was seeing this guy... Oh, here's something I want to talk about. Uh, Negotiating condom use. Oh, yeah. And one person, or or in in the lack of of in-depth negotiation of condom use, one person deciding that they're no longer going to use a condom and uh, not checking with the other person. Right. That's just called fucked up sexual etiquette. Yeah. Like, that's just, that's not something that I think good communication fixes. That's just someone being inappropriate to another human being. I agree entirely. Yeah. Well, that happened. (laughs) Fuck. Yeah. Like, we were using a condom, and then he decided in the middle of things that he was just not going to use one anymore. And, you know, heat of the moment and whatnot. I didn't stop him. And it turned out that while we were seeing each other, he was also seeing several other people, which, again, we hadn't had the conversation about. Well, we kind of had a conversation. So if I can just rewind and just say I really dodged a bullet Mm -hmm. and I'm glad that he dumped me. It sounds like it. Yeah. um, It would like it's so frustrating. I'm like I'm still angry at myself. For not being more assertive and like having these conversations about like what was and was not okay with me mm-hmm. um, after the fact or in the moment um in the in in the moment and like over the course of our relationship, I wish that we had talked about whether or not we were gonna have sex with other people and that sort of thing um, so we had a bunch of unprotected sex. And then it, he, like, dumped me very suddenly out of nowhere for somebody else because it turned out that he had been seeing all these other people in the meantime. So my response, because I'm somebody who's always, like, trying to intellectualize every emotional thing in the world so I don't have to have feelings, I was like, well, I'll just, I'll go, I'll get an STI check, and science will tell me I'm fine, you know? And, and clean bill of health, no harm, no foul. Mm. <sighs> So I went to Planned Parenthood, right, by where I lived at the time, and sat outside for like an hour until somebody came by and was like, oh, we're not opening today. We're, we're having like an internal training thing. And I was like, why? <laughs> of all days, why does this have to happen today? So then I went to a different Planned Parenthood, and they told me that it was probably still too soon, but that they would chest me anyway, so that I was just like crying in the sad little bathroom and trying to pee in a cup and do that whole thing. And then, like, a week later, I got a call from the New, Jer- New Jersey Board of Health being like, hey, uh, can you call us back when when you get this message? We have some information about the test that you had run last week. Which immediately my vagina started burning. As soon as I heard wow. that, just like, oh, my God, itching, burning. 
I, I definitely have AIDS and a hundred other STDs. Right, right. Um, so I call him back and the guy who's, who is so nice and so helpful and so I'm okay, you're okay throughout the whole situation. It's awesome when those people on the phone are well-trained because yeah. that's not always the case. Yeah, so shout out to Carlos at the Patterson Board of Health. <laughs> <laughs> he was amazing through the whole thing. Um, and... It, asked you know had this like really long question there about very detailed about my sexual history um which up to then i had been you know pretty uh, compared to most people very responsible not as responsible as i as a now fully grown woman Mm -hmm. would have liked me to be but whatever um and he the last question that he had for me was, have you ever had Lyme disease before? Mm. And I was like, yes. Why? And it turns out that both syphilis and... Wait, did I, did I mention that he told me I had a false positive for syphilis? I think I skipped over that part. No, you part. skipped over that part, yeah. That's the important part. Uh, I had, I, I had a, a positive test for syphilis, which was, like, shocking to me. Yeah, because it's really unusual for, relatively unusual for heterosexual women to get syphilis. Right, yeah. right. And, I mean, especially in 2011. Yeah. Um, and so it turns out that the Lyme bacteria and the syphilis bacteria are both spirochetes. So, right. so they're like well, cousins spiral, of each other. Yeah. yeah. And so when they test you for either condition, they're only looking at the antibodies and not for the, at the presence of the actual bacteria. So antibodies from a past Lyme infection can cause a false positive for syphilis. That's fascinating. Yeah. I've since read that that's maybe not true, but like who fucking knows? Anyway. um, So I was like, oh yeah, no, I definitely, I had Lyme disease in 2008. It was like a whole big confusing thing that I'm still like confused about, but yes. Um, And he was like, oh, okay, so, you know, it might have been a false positive. We have to do a confirmation test, uh, which is still only about 50% accurate. So um, if you can, you know, contact your partner, ask them to come in and get tested, or they can go somewhere else, get tested, and have the results sent. Um, Now, prior to this, I had asked him, like, when was was the last time you got tested? Like, I feel really violated. Um, I had been tested, like, before him and after anyone else. So um, I felt very confident about my status prior to that relationship, you know. and And he told me that he then went and got tested and that he would have the results, um... He told he had told me that he had gone and gotten tested. That's but, always a complicated thing, I think, when you ask people, "Have you been tested?" Right. Because often people aren't totally clear on what they've been tested for. Yeah. More often than not, they're just tested for chlamydia and gonorrhea because that's the easy to test, right. common thing. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's just a chlamydia test, and then if that's positive, they'll test for gonorrhea, um, depending on the protocol. Yeah, that's a really excellent point because when I was at Planned Parenthood, I was like, test me for fucking everything. I want I want the full panel, full range. I don't care what sort of like samples you need from my body, but just take them. Um, but I had to send him an email after that phone call and be like, hey, so I tested positive for syphilis. Um, it might be this Lyme thing, you know. I don't know, but, like, I really need you to send them your results since you said that you got tested. He probably wasn't tested for syphilis. Like, unless you 
tell a doctor about particular sexual behaviors that are high risk for syphilis. It's not part of a standard panel. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I don't think that he actually did go and get tested right. because it took Other him issue. <laughs> several weeks. Um, but uh, I had deleted his contact information because I was like, fuck that guy. And so I tried to type in his email address by memory, and I thought it was firstname.lastname at gmail.com, but it was actually nickname.lastname at gmail.com. And the email went through, and it never got bounced back to me. And there definitely is, other, there definitely are other people with his name, so it probably went through to somebody, and they probably got an email from me being like, I might have syphilis, and you might too. Uh, please... I could imagine that would be a high anxiety email for a lot of people to receive. Yeah. Well, when you realize you've sent it to the wrong person, also a very high anxiety. I mean, it's a high anxiety email to send in general. Absolutely, yeah. And then to realize that you've sent it to the wrong person. I remember, like, weeping and and crying to my best friend, being like, this is going to be funny someday, right? We're going to laugh about this really soon, right? This is going to be hilarious. Which I'm, I'm glad that I can always keep that in mind. Does, that, I... does it feel funny to you now? Or does oh, it... it's fucking hilarious. I mean, it was this whole thing was like super traumatizing. Yeah. But even then I was like, this is going to be funny. So I sent him the email and then I had to follow up with him like four or five times. And, and when I went in for the confirmation test, it turns out their protocol is to start treatment immediately. Oh, interesting. Yeah, with antibiotic shots in your butt. Several of them over the course of several weeks. So over the course of several weeks, while I'm trying to get him to either send his results or go in for a test at this facility, um, I got three three shots. And at the end of the day, he finally went and got tested at this facility. At the end of the day, I did not have syphilis, but I did get a yeast infection from the antibiotics. Well... That's a fun little present after that Isn't saga. That? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, this whole thing has a happy ending in that I met my current partner, like, just as I was recovering from the yeast infection. And <laughs> it was like the skies parting and the sun coming through. Yeah, kind of. And, vaginally. And <laughs> my vaginal skies opened up. Um, and we ha- are celebrating our five-year anniversary this year, so... Congratulations. Thank That's really you. exciting. Yeah, it is really exciting, um, and I can laugh about it now, and I'm, I'm very happy about that. Um, but, like, I don't... I, the way, I don't want the way that I tell that story to be, to, to like, add to the stigma and add mm. to, like, ew, gross, STIs. People who have STIs are gross. I don't think the way you tell that story reinforces that. I think the way you tell that story highlights just how anxious and difficult it can be to navigate all of that, both the emotional component mm. as well as the medical component of it. Yeah. And how not clear-cut a lot of it is. Yeah. Yeah. And that is, has been a theme throughout my health history. Right, right. So I, I was also thinking, like, maybe I should tell, a, like, a bigger story about uncertainty, but because this is the first, like, storytelling thing that I'm doing, I think I should probably stick to, like, something less abstract mm-hmm. and a story that has, like, a beginning, middle, end. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Yeah. It's it's interesting. It, it's interesting because um, Story Collider also has a podcast. Like, they'll take certain stories from the live show and and publish it on the podcast so part of me is like i'm not sure 
I want that to be one of the first things that comes up when you Google my name. <laughs> but I didn't have syphilis, so does it matter? I don't know. Eh, who knows? Yeah. That is interesting, though, about, you know, when you Google someone, what, what are the things that come up first and yeah. how to manage that, I think is... Yeah. I think that's, a, a, I imagine, a useful framework for thinking how you're going to manage it. Yeah, I try to think about that a lot. Like, for the podcast, I actually use my middle name mm. instead of my last name. And, like, if you know my last name, you can get to it. It'll just take you maybe 30 seconds longer. It's <laughs> not <laughs> the first thing, you know, the first result. Um, so you recently had, like, a West Coast tour. I did. Of your sex educator stuff. Do you want to talk about that? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, so I... Um, when I was in grad school in Australia, I met this amazing woman, Louise Boucher, who I refer to as my professional soulmate. And she's just an absolutely incredible human. And uh, every couple of years we get together and we teach together. Now she's living in New Zealand. She's a, she's a, a lecturer at a university there and also does sex ed work freelance. And um, I live in New York now, and so we, we get together and we have a little teaching tour. Uh, so we met up in San Francisco. We had our outfits coordinated for our little airport reunion. I had a, my Batman shirt with a cape on it, and she had her Robin shirt with a cape on it. That's adorable. And we, then we get bubble tea together and take pictures in our costumes, drinking bubble tea. That's like our thing. <laughs> and we did two workshops when we were in San Francisco. We both were at the Antique Vibrator Museum. It's one of my favorite venues to teach in, just being surrounded by this history of pleasure and the medicalization of mm -hmm. women's issues. You know, it's not all cheerful, but it's all really interesting. Mm -hmm. And I, I find it very cool and kind of empowering to be in that space. So we taught a workshop on uh, that we call Pleasure Upgrade that's sort of a combination of uh, how to pleasure a vulva and how to communicate about sex. Mm. So those are two topics that people ask a ton of questions about, and so we kind of put them together and how to integrate the two. Um, like, knowing technique is super awesome, but if you don't know how to communicate about which techniques actually work for you and your partner, it's a less useful skill set. Yeah. Um, so we did that workshop, which was great, and then we did Tea and Empathy as well. Um, it was very fascinating to see. It's always interesting to see who comes to workshops. Mm -hmm. So like, what type of person comes to an empathy workshop in their free time? What type of person comes to an empathy workshop in a sex store right. in their free time. Yeah. We had a really eclectic group of people, which was neat. Cool. Yeah. Um, so then we, we traveled, we got a car and traveled down the coast of California and we taught a workshop in Monterey with a bunch of youth artists, uh, which was incredible. Uh, it was, everyone was, I think about 15 to 22 or so. Um, it's an organi amazing organization called the Youth Arts Collective. And uh, they seem to really respond to it. Surprise, teenagers have a lot of feelings. Um, Who would have ever thought? I know, crazy. Um, yeah, so that was great. And then after Monterey, we went and visited a sex researcher friend of ours that was in Ventura. So we spent lots of time by the ocean. Nice. And then we spent three days with uh, in Anaheim with uh, a bunch of the other sex geekdom emissaries. So sex geekdom is... Um, this thing that I started when I was in Australia, it's a, a meetup group for people who are like me, who 
want to have meaningful conversations about sex with people that they don't necessarily want to have sex with. So it's it's fairly easy to find meetups and stuff where people want to talk about sex mm-hmm. with as kind of a prelude to having it. Right. Um, and I think that's fabulous. Like yeah, sure. that's to each their own. Like I think that's a great thing to exist. But I I think that in order to see the kind of revolution that I'd like to see in the way the world talks about sex, we have to know how to talk about it in in ways that are not explicitly um, about sex as the goal. Uh-huh. Um, and I've always been clear from very early on and having sex geeked at meetups that I wanted to be something that people who are asexual would feel comfortable attending. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, so the I started this in Melbourne, Australia in 2012. And since then, we've um, people have started meetups in, in dozens of cities all over the world, which is awesome. So the people who run those meetups get invited to a retreat once a year now. This is the second year we've run these. Um, and so we had a bunch of people converging on Anaheim to hang out in a house for for three days and talk about talk about sexuality and the sex ed revolution and the work that we're all doing and how to make our meetups better and all of that sort of stuff yeah great awesome it was amazing and then we spent a bunch of time in San Diego with uh, another uh, sex educator friend of ours talking a lot about sex toys and pleasure and communication it was it was great yeah that sounds great. Also exhausting. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that was amazing about having Louise there is how she um, was just there to provide so much support. So, for example, like I had a I had a migraine in the morning of one of our workshops and she's able to carry it basically and kind of create hold space for the whole group and and be able to manage that when I have less energy. So hard to like make friends as a grown up though. Oh god, can we talk about that? Can we yeah. talk about it's hard to make friends as a grown up. I think about this all the time. I I remember before I moved to New York City, people were warning me about how hard it would be to make friends here. Mm-hmm. And I actually found the opposite. Um so I've got some extrovert privilege there. So like meeting going to an event where there are people I don't know is not something that deeply stresses me out. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not like my favorite thing <laughs> to go somewhere where I don't know anyone. Um, but since moving to New York, it's been something that I've been giving a lot of thought to about how to make friends as a grown up. And, and I honestly think that the best skill set that I have for making friends is empathy. Because mm-hmm. if you, if you're able to be it, it, not just able to have empathy, but be able to communicate empathy, it makes people feel closer, faster. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that's hard for New Yorkers about making friends, and I think this is true for people in a lot of other cities as well, where people are highly busy, it's that they kind of yearn for efficiency in their lives. And I think when you have communication skills where you can establish shared reality quickly and establish a certain degree of appropriate intimacy, I mean, not Mm -hmm. necessarily about your deepest, darkest trauma, um, but just about how you feel about life and something that's even a little bit vulnerable that allows you to establish more of a rapport more quickly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not just extrovert privilege, but the fact that you spend so much time working with empathy and have like such advanced empathy skills. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I'd like to think so. I, I hope that's true. Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, when I went to your teen empathy workshop, you sat down next to me and it was like you were my best friend instantly, <laughs> which is for me as somebody who has a lot of social anxiety and is very socially awkward is like best case scenario. (laughs) Like, Oh, this person already wants to be my friend. Great. 
where you can, you know, like, because I'm so, I'm, I hate small talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd rather die than have small talk. <laughs> but if you want to, like, sit in a corner with me for three hours and talk about menstruation and death and, like, yeah. very serious topics, but in a fun way, like, yeah. totally here for it. But getting over that, like, initial, you know, s- small talk thing, I think is one of the biggest barriers to making friends yeah. as an adult. I think, yeah, I think so too. And I think my experience as a sex educator has actually helped me with this Mm -hmm. because I don't particularly enjoy small talk either, but I recognize that some people need it in order to feel comfortable. Like it serves a purpose. Right. I I don't connect with articles that are like small talk sucks and it's horrible because it's, it's genuinely something people need in order to establish Mm -hmm. shared reality and to, to feel, to gauge what they can and can't talk about. But I, so my, my sex educator hat is like small talk is the foreplay. People need different amounts of foreplay in order to feel comfortable for whatever activity it is that you're wanting to get to, Um, which in the case of the conversations with you, it's like talking about deep, meaningful shit that matters. (laughs) Um, And so I just, when when I engage in small talk, I'm really clear about how do I take this to a more interesting place? Mm -hmm. And how do I, um, I think I have kind of different small talk tracks that I take that I have a history of leading me in the kinds of social directions that I want to get to. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah, that's interesting. And also, I mean, there's so few opportunities for us as grown-ups. Grown-ups. Adult human beings. I like grown-ups. Grown-ups. Where we're, like, mixed up and put in a social situation with new people. Especially for adult non-drinkers that aren't... Yeah. Oh, man. Tell me about it. Like, I'm a non-drinker as well. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, even just to... Like, when you meet someone new... And when you do you do meet somebody that wants to have a friend date, so often the first suggestion is like happy hour or something mm-hmm. like that. And it's like, well, I could go get an overpriced club soda at this bar that you want to go to. That I like can't hear you speaking. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah, that that does definitely make it complicated. And I tend to uh I tend to suggest alternatives and um for a tea date or things like that. And and in in my experience, if somebody is if drinking is like a non-negotiable part of how they interact socially we're probably not going to be fabulous yeah. friends like i have zero problem with people drinking or yeah. whatever it's just uh if that's all you can do yeah it's, it, again it's like that like you were talking about before about having that like disclosure conversation and kind of acts as a screen yes for people absolutely a filtering sort of mechanism yeah yeah, yeah. um because i People have a really hard time with adult non-drinkers who aren't pregnant or in recovery. They right. like have no context for it whatsoever. Yeah, it's like, are you are you an addict? Are you like are are you religious or what? Whatever. Yeah. It is. Like, there's a there's this yeah, bit of underpants on. What's going on? <laughs> right. Exactly. They kind of tilt their head to the sideways sometimes. But um, yeah. I find that you know I've, I I think just putting myself in more situations where I am meeting new adults who are more like me and have shared reality in some way are a little more um, or, or or less judgmental about the drinking thing and mm-hmm. are cool to accommodate. Yeah. Me. And a, a workshop like tea and empathy. Right. Like you were saying, it's interesting to see who shows up. Yeah. Like the 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 people that you're going to get showing up to that are not everyone, right? Exactly. Yeah. It's definitely a self-selected group of people. Yeah, yeah. it's a nice cross section of my interests. So I was like, "Ooh, this sounds delightful," and it was. Thanks for listening to this episode of In Sickness and In Health. 
check out our other episode this week where we talk about chronic migraine, cannabis, and tea and empathy. Check out the episode page for links to some of the stuff we talk about this episode and a link to that upcoming tea and empathy workshop in Brooklyn. You can find resources and more from us at insicknesspod.com and on social media at insicknesspod. Find Kate and all of her workshops, including tea and empathy, online at katemacombs.com. Check out Sex Geekdom at sexgeekdom.com and on social media at sexgeekdom. Find Kate on Twitter at katecom and on Instagram at kateanswers. And don't forget to be excellent to yourselves and each other. <laughs>